You're listening to The Happy Podcast with your host, Ava Keenan. Hi, everybody. Today we are here with Tess Johnson, and we're going to be asking a couple questions just about skiing and being an athlete in general. So let's get started. So we're going to start off with the basic question, you know, how did you get into mogul skiing? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ava. Um, I'm super honored to be your first guest. This is so cool that you're starting your own podcast. Really, really special and impressive at 12 years old, right? Okay, so to answer your question, I started skiing when I was two years old. And my parents are both from the East Coast, but they moved out here. My dad was a raft guide and a ski patroller. My mom was a ski instructor and they were just living the life. (laughs) And then they had my sister and me and my little brother. And um, they taught us all how to ski right here on Beaver Creek. Um, And I think I, I don't remember, but I think I just loved it instantly. And my mom has told me that I kind of started carving really early on. And yeah, the rest is history since then. I've loved it ever since. Yeah, that's really cool. And obviously, the more popular sports are like racing over them, like mogul skiing. So how did you choose mogul skiing over those other more popular ones now? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. Um, So I never really was too interested in alpine skiing, which is the gates. Um, I loved to jump and I really wanted to do slope style. I think I was about eight years old and I've always been really competitive. And so I was doing the Bevo program at Beaver Creek for a few years. And, you know, my mom and my dad had heard of Ski and Snowboard Club Vail as a competitive program and they thought it would be great for me. And so my mom was looking through programs that would have jumping for me because she knew how much I loved to jump. And she signed me up for bumps and jumps because I was too young to do the slope style program. So she was like, oh, bumps and jumps, that'll, that has jumps in it. <laughs> and as it turned out, it was mogul skiing, what I do today and what you do as well, Ava. And um, I actually ended up loving the bumps even more than the jumps. But the coaches and all of my teammates kind of took me under their wing immediately. And it was just a community I knew I wanted to be a part of. That's really, really cool. <laughs> now, once you were in moguls and you loved them, What made you want to pursue them as a career? I would have to say a few things. So one, I kind of surprised myself at first how much fun I had, but kind of how naturally skiing moguls came to me and the competitor that I am, I, you know, thrive when I'm feeling like I'm successful and I think we all do. So I felt like, oh, I'm I'm pretty good at this and I have fun with it and I like it. So I'm going to keep doing it. And then I watched Hannah Carney win gold in 2010. I watched from my living room. I think I was sitting up as close to the TV as I possibly could get. I was on the floor, just starstruck by her perfect run. And I remember watching Shannon Barkey, who got bronze, come up and give her the biggest hug and just thinking that that was so cool. And I would say that was kind of the distinct moment that my Olympic dreams were born. And I knew that I wanted to dedicate my life or the next whatever years to winning 
the Olympics for the USA and for making the national team. That's 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 really cool. That's really interesting. I love that. Now you talked about the Olympics, and I know that this year was a tough year, not making it into the Olympics. So how did you handle that? Um. Yeah, it was really tough. Behind me, you can see that's my bib from Pyeongchang. So I'm a 2018 Olympian. I was 17 years old when I went to that Olympics, and it was a magical experience, like dream come true. Um, was totally an underdog going into it and at the games. Um, so this year, four years later, I was really peaking in my career, and I was skiing better than I ever have this past season. And I was looking really good, or so I thought, to make the Olympics, and it didn't work out, and that was heartbreaking. And um, I think that everyone has gone through some type of loss and heartbreak like that in their life, whether it's sports-related or a relationship, whatever it is. And so that was kind of one of the toughest losses that I've experienced in my life, and it was really hard and emotional. And I think that on top of just being a professional athlete training for the Olympics during a pandemic created this whole other layer of stress and anxiety. And I mean, leading up to the Olympics, all of us on the US ski team had been isolated from every single person we knew for weeks. Um, and so I ended up going to China as an alternate, which was very hard and emotionally draining. But I took some time with my family after and skied Vale, my favorite mountain, which is where I'm from. And I just kind of focused on tapping back into my passion for mogul skiing. And I finished the season off strong and I'm committed to the next four years. So it's kind of all part of it is that the triumph and the defeat. You'll find that, Ava, as you continue on in your career. It's all part of it. Yeah, well, I'm very sorry that that happened, but it seems oh, like you took that as a learning lesson. So, yeah, yeah thank you. That. Yeah. So, preparing for the next four years, what are you going to do or how are you going to train to make sure that this won't happen again? Well, I mean, looking back on it, I think what I've realized and what I've learned is that I wouldn't do anything differently. I focused on what I can, could control, I performed very well the best I ever have and I'm really proud of everything I did I think my process was spot on and I think I just kind of need to continue on that journey of focusing on what I can control and I think I'm in a great spot with my training and my jumps that was kind of the biggest focus this year was increasing my degree of difficulty adding in a cork seven which has been a long time dream of mine and so I think for the next four years it's just about continuing on that journey of improving my weak points in the sport and what I love to focus on, especially at this point in my career, it's very important is my mentality in working with a sports psychologist. So I really think I'm on the right track and I think I'm proud of everything I did and I won't be changing too much. Yeah. You have been on a really nice track. I've been watching you the whole way. You've done some really amazing things. Good job. Thank you. You're talking about, um, sports psychology and your mental game how do you work on that other than your sports psychologist yeah so there's a few things and I have worked with a sports psychologist since I was 14 years old um John Dowling who is your coach as well he kind of recommended it to me when I was 14 and I really struggled with the nerves of 
competing and those butterflies that we all get when we step into the start gate. And I think I, I worried about the outcome and I still do. I worry about the outcome and it kind of takes away from my focus on what's really important in that moment. So I've worked with a sports psychologist, um, the same one at the U.S. ski team for about four years now. And I love working with him. We meet, I would say, on average, once a week, once every two weeks. Uh, but in addition to that, I practice mindfulness every single day, at least 10 minutes, because not only does it help staying in the moment and staying mindful with my sport, but I think it's really helped just in life and in my relationships and just as me as a person. So I'd really recommend practicing mindfulness to everyone. Um, and then another thing that I've started doing this year, which I think is pretty cool, it's a little bit nerdy, <laughs> is um, some visualization. And so what I'll do is I'll dress up in my entire outfit, my ski outfit, poles, gloves, helmet, goggles, and I'll just be in my bedroom or my garage. And I'll close my eyes and visualize a competition day. And so that's three runs. That's qualifications, finals, and superfinals. And I'll visualize each run. And I'll visualize the process at the top of the course of me warming up and me, you know, two out from my competition run. And then in the start gate and riding up the chair even. And that has really helped me a lot. And um, actually going into one of the World Cups this year that I podiumed at, I visualized that day about 20 times before it happened. And so the idea is that if you can visualize it super realistically with you know, all of the potential distractions and obstacles, all of the noises you hear, the people you're gonna run into, um, then by the time you get there, you've already done it. And so it gives me a lot of confidence. So those are a few things that I work on in sports psychology and they're really fun to experiment with. I just am fascinated by anything psychology related. That's that's really amazing. I really like that. So you're talking about being in the start gate and getting those butterflies and obviously when like everything starts like fizz up and every you get like really tense, like how do you handle that? Cuz I know a lot of people struggle with that and that can like throw them off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have struggled with that. <laughs> I think everyone has. And I think our sport is so unique in that you really do need to perform when it counts. Um, you know, I, I compare it to kind of something like really like racing, alpine racing. There's no judges in that sport. Mm -hmm. um, it's just you and the clock. We have a seven judge panel and the clock <laughs> and all of our competitors Many of whom are teammates, some of our closest friends. So there's a lot of layers to what we have to, you know, overcome when we step into the start gate. And I think for me, what it comes down to is trusting my training, trusting my process, trusting that I've done everything I can and that I'm ready for that moment. That gives me confidence. And then it's just about doing it, really. And it, it sounds so simple and it sounds so easy, um, but it's not. It's very hard. And so I think like kind of just finding that balance between intensity, the right intensity and the right composure is, you know, that's what everyone 
strives for. That's what Mikkel Kingsbury does so well every single time. Um, and I, like I said, mindfulness has really helped me with that moment and just kind of taking a deep breath, trusting everything that I've done so far and letting it rip because at my point in my career, I've done so many reps. I've done so many jumps and TDVs and skied so many moguls that really it's just about what goes on in my head. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a combination of things. And I think on any given day, there's so many dis- possible distractions, um, like what another competitor just did, or maybe someone just fell where you were struggling, or maybe this is the event that would qualify you for the Olympics. <laughs> and mm-hmm. all of those are very real. And so for me, it's not about like ignoring them or trying to trying to get rid of them, but just accept those for what they are and realize that I'm still going to do what I planned to do. Yeah, that's always that really cool. I definitely needed to hear that from like professional because that was really, that was really cool. Um, so you were talking about like your process. I know a lot of people when they, before they go for the run, does it affect you when people are cheering for you or, like, are you listening to music or do you just kind of tune all that out and just focus on your run? Well, like I was saying earlier, for me, I, I don't, I think when I've tried to tune things out and ignore things, I think it makes me more nervous, if that makes sense, because then I'm spending energy trying to ignore something that's happening and I don't need to waste energy on that. So it's more about just kind of accepting the reality and that there are going to be distractions, that this is a competition that I really want to win. And yeah, those that's the reality. And that's totally okay. It doesn't change that I'm about to focus on keeping my hands up in the top section. And it doesn't change that I'm going to try to narrow my line in the top of the middle section, you know? So it's kind of like about accepting the reality and then bringing my attention back to certain cues that I know will make me ski well, if that makes sense. Um, And so I, and I don't really listen to music. Um, I listen to music when I warm up in the lodge, but other than that, I kind of like to just experience it all. And it's almost like a challenge to me, like how, how nervous can I get and still ski my run? Because that's kind of the most rewarding at the end of the day. If you have so many distractions and you're so nervous and you know, there's so much pressure and you still ski or run, that's the biggest confidence booster that anyone can ever have. Yeah, it's definitely something I need to learn because when I went to junior nationals, I just came back from an injury Mm -hmm. and I was standing at the top and everybody was like cheering. I'm like, you're going to do great. And I just, I was just trying to block them out, but it like wasn't working. And I was, I, and I just like, was, I wasn't focused on what I should have been focusing on. Right. And that definitely, I think, messed me up. And so once they're like competitor ready, I was not ready at all. Mm-hmm. And I, I was in the wrong headspace. So I think that that's definitely a key piece because that def- definitely messed me up. Yeah. yeah. I Yeah. I mean, I totally know where you're coming from. I've been there and um, and I've been there this season. Like it's something yeah. that you're const- you're going to be working on forever but it gets easier with experience. And the more that you practice that, that the more you work that muscle of just 
bringing back your focus to what you want it to be on. And that's why I practice mindfulness every single day, because really you're sitting there, you're closing your eyes, you're focusing on your breathing and we're only human. We're going to get distracted. We're going to start thinking about things. We're going to think about, you know, what we need to do tomorrow or that homework assignment that I forgot to do or, oh, like my leg hurts. And so then when you realize you've been distracted, you're like, oh, like I, I'm distracted right now or I'm nervous or there's a bunch of people cheering for me in your case. That's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to focus on, you know, whatever it is. Like I call them cues. I'm just going to bring my focus back to my cue, which is often like chest up in the top air or something like that. Yeah. But I mean, that's a perfect like example, Ava, of what I've been through and what every other athlete has been through. <laughs> yeah. So do you ever have high expectations going into a competition? Yes. <laughs> Always. Mm-hmm. And what happens if those expectations are not met? I get really sad and I get really critical of myself and um, it's really hard. So in, in the past few years, I've tried to kind of differentiate expect expectations and standards. And so I think it's really important for people to always hold themselves to the highest standard. But I mm. think expectations can be harmful if they're not met, like you said. Yeah. And I think that, you know, going into an event, going into a training session, it's important to have a plan and plan out what you're going to do, why you're going to do that, and what goal that's going to help you achieve. And if you stick to that plan, then you've done everything you can. And that's you holding yourself to that high standard. Mm. If the outcome isn't what you wanted it to be, then at least you can have assurance knowing that you stuck to your plan and you did everything you could and you controlled what you could. And so I think that that's kind of the epitome of like focusing on the process rather than the outcome. Um, Because yeah, when you fall short of expectations, it's a bummer. And I think it's also important to acknowledge that anytime, you know, you lose, it's gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt. And it's gonna, it's not gonna feel good. (laughs) And no matter how much you, you know, say, oh, I stuck to my plan and try to be positive and that's all great, but it's still going to hurt, you know? We're yeah. human and we want to win. And I know how badly you want to win too, Ava. Yeah. Like, we're competitive people and that's okay. But you can use that to, you know, fuel future plans rather than just getting down on yourself and kind of um, losing hope because that's that's a pretty uh, toxic place to go. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, def- I A lot of the times I go into that like – beating myself up and like losing hope and I go to that area like for example juniors again I I came in with super high expectations even though I was out for like five and a half weeks and then I came in with like three days of training after that and I went to juniors and I did I did like really bad I think I got like 56 or something like that and I was like and I wanted to do like a lot better like a lot better and I was super 
super disappointed when I got down to the bottom. I was telling myself that I suck and I don't even know why I came here after three days of training. That is such a stupid idea. So, and then I kind of used that to like tell myself that it's going to happen sometimes. Now you need to work through it because I think the biggest mistake was not doing bad in the runs, but beating myself up after yes. when that was not needed. It was very unnecessary and it would just bring you down even more. So, yeah, I think definitely all the things you said there were very, very important. And I agree with every single word. Yeah, you're super wise to realize that. Like the mistake isn't, you know, messing up in your run or falling. It's, you know, beating yourself up and feel like calling yourself a failure when failure is totally natural and it really helps people like us with, you know, a lot of drive and a lot of competitiveness. So yeah. yeah. Now that I look back, I, I probably would have been more happy getting, getting the 56 and getting done after my run and be like, it's fine. I didn't yeah. like, it's fine. Like I tried, I did what I did. I, tried my best like it's fine like I've, I looking back I thought it was so stupid how I beat myself up because there was nothing I could do about it totally yeah and I think it's really important to like I'll just re-emphasize like setting those goals and making sure those goals are realistic in the sense of the standard you want to hold yourself to for example my goals are almost always performance related not results related so I'm focusing on okay Today, I want to do, um, like, I want to ski out of my cork seven with tight feet. Or it could be a mental thing. Like, I want to have fun today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when the day's over, whether I've won, whether I've got a podium, whether I didn't make finals, whether I crashed, if I go back to that goal and I say, well, did I do that? Did I ski out of my cork seven with tight feet? Did I have fun? If the answer is yes, then that's, you know, that's a success, even though, of course, you want to win. Of course, we all want to win. That's totally natural. It's important to fo stay focused on that process and those kind of smaller goals that are more performance related and more related on what you can control. Because at the end of the day, this sport, like I said, is judged by humans. <laughs> it's judged by other people who, you know, will will have biases, whether they're intending to or not they might make mistakes they they're going to mark you the way that they want to mark you and that's just the reality of the sport so it's it would be unwise to you know place all of your goals in like another human's hands right yeah if you look at it that way it's like oh well then yeah my goals should probably be more performance related <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. exactly so we're talking about failures and success. How do you define success? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I think success is just, I mean, I guess to say it in fewer words, but it's basically like knowing that you did your best to achieve the goal that you set. And so yeah. I, and I like, I'm just big on goal setting and it, cause it's helped me so much and literally writing down my goals. Um, and knowing, like, I guess that the, when everything is said and done, knowing in my heart that I put everything into it, that I planned for it, that I had the right mentality for it, and I did my very best. I think that at the end of the day, if I can say that I did all those things, that's successful. Yeah, that's, I definitely agree with that. That's 
trying your best and doing your best also yeah yeah exactly and like really following through and um I you know I know the ski and snowboard club Vale talks a lot about commitment and that's kind of what success takes it takes committing to that goal fully on and off the hill um in your bedroom dressed up in your ski clothes like that's definitely what um success takes yeah um going back to always wanting to win and not wanting to make mistakes also like I don't think it would be a good thing if you won every single time because then you wouldn't you wouldn't really learn you just stay how you ski and you stay what you've been doing and it doesn't really benefit you in any way because you don't know what you need to fix mm-hmm. so yeah I think that's definitely a big thing yeah absolutely I would also say um just that now that we're talking you kind of made me think of this I think also success like at the end of a day or season I think a huge part of success is learning something and taking something away from an event a run um, someone else's run even and I think the more you're learning the more you can evolve and change as a skier an athlete a person and I think that is instrumental to success especially in women's mogul skiing it has evolved so much over the past two years only. And everyone is getting so good and changing their tricks and getting faster and stronger. And so if you aren't learning and changing, then you're going to get left behind. And that was a lesson I learned the hard way about three years ago. Um, And so I think success takes a lot of learning and willing to look in the mirror and see what needs to adapt and change to um to reach your goals because that's definitely what this sport takes and I would imagine many other sports yeah yeah definitely so talking about being a woman athlete what do you think about being a woman athlete in today's world oh my gosh I think it's the coolest thing ever I mean I think female athletes across the world across all sports and disciplines are just like making history, setting records and proving to other young women and girls around the world that they can do it too. And I mean, that's a huge reason why I am where I am today is because of women like Hannah Carney and Shannon Barkey. And I mean, Gabby Douglas, Simone Biles, Abby Wambach, just incredible women who have really just shown the world what we're capable of and so it's cool to be just a very very small part of that yeah that's really amazing so we've seen women's mobile skiing evolve so much just in the 2010 olympics for the airs back lay to 360 now that's what we're doing in our rmd competitions and now the female uh women in the world cups are doing court core sevens to back X. What do you think, how much more do you think it'll evolve in the next like five to 10 years? Mm, That's a really good question. Five to 10 years, I think it'll evolve a ton. I mean, we've already seen Kai, um, Liz Lemley, Kai Owens, Liz Lemley, Olivia Giaccio throwing cork tens and many, many other women are not far behind. 
with that. So in the next five to 10 years, I think that will be a consistent trick. And, you know, for those who don't know, the not not even all the men are throwing cork tens. Yeah. So that's pretty special. Um, but then, you know, not on the air side of things, I think jumping is kind of an easy way to measure the progress of the sport. But I think in the skiing, like we're skiing so much faster than we used to. And oh, we're yeah. skiing with a lot more strength than we used to. I mean, Perrine and Henri and Jalen Koff are often like rivaling the men in speed times. <laughs> and wow. and just in general technique, I mean, I some of my favorite mogul skiers, most of my favorite mogul skiers are women <laughs> just because of the way they ski and their style and their technique. Um, so, oh gosh, in 10 years, I can't even honestly fathom what women's mogul skiing will look like because I don't think that those those tricks have even like been invented yet and I don't even think that that skiing has happened yet so that's pretty cool but in the next Olympics four years from now I think it'll look relatively similar just because the past two years there's been such a such a jump and I think we're going to be spending the next Olympic cycle kind of perfecting those runs but honestly I mean I could see anything happening like I just never will underestimate the power of the women in this sport yeah so you talked about the men a little bit and how you look up to some of their mogul skiing but mostly women what do you think the main difference is between women's mogul skiing and the way that men mogul ski Hmm. that is a very good question um I mean, I think women's mogul skiing is more creative, um, especially in competition. I think the men tend to get caught up in power and speed, um, which is not a bad thing. But I think the women tend to get more creative in their path and style. And so I think you see more distinct skiing. But that's a really tough question um, because there are some incredible different styles of skiing on the men's side as well. Um, but yeah, I guess I just, some of my favorite mogul skiers, maybe they just happen to be women. I'm, I'm not really sure why. Yeah. So when you were talking about like your teammates and how they're like on the heels of the men, how so they've been progressing so much, do you look up to any of your teammates and who would those people be? I look up to all my teammates, um, every single one of them. I'm close friends with all of them. We've been through a lot together, um, two Olympic cycles now, (laughs) and they're some of my closest friends. Um, And yeah, each of them has their own, I think, legacy in this sport, their own specialty in their skiing and competing, and they're all just great people. So yeah, I look up to every single one. That's really amazing. That's really cool. So we're kind of getting to the end here. So when we're talking about training and how hard you train, you go to the gym all the time, you do all this mental work, all the visualizing. Has there ever been a time when you don't want to go skiing and you don't want to train? And like, how do you handle those days? Yes, there has been. Um, I used to struggle a ton with water ramping. Um, that was my least favorite part of the sport. And it almost drove me to wanting to quit. Not actually, but there were days yeah. when 
when I was just like, uh, because water amping, for those who don't know, is, I mean, at, at my point in my career, it's 40 plus days in the summer of walking upstairs, performing a aerial maneuver into a pool, and then doing that again about 25 times every day. And it is really fun. And I like learned to love it. But it just gets really repetitive and really monotonous. And especially when you're working on such minute details of a jump and it gets so technical, it's really easy to get burnt out, really. And I think that I've gotten to that point a few times with water ramping. Another part or another reason why I didn't like water ramping, and this is the main one, is that it was my weakest point. And jumping for a while was my weakest point. And so I often just convinced myself that I would never get better at it that I was a failure and said that there was almost no point in trying because I would watch girls pass me and younger girls pass me and I'd watch the boys and it was really um it was really debilitating and I had to figure out how to change my outlook on water ramping to love it because I love this sport so much and I didn't want to quit and I was and I you know, I wasn't going to take that. I wasn't going to give up because of water ramping. And mm-hmm. so I changed my outlook and I figured out how to have fun with it. And I got a lot better at it a lot quickly once I changed my attitude. And I've had a ton of fun with it the past two summers. And I'm really looking forward to water ramping, which is not something I used to say. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of all about changing your outlook, really, and examining what about something makes you dislike it or what about something makes you not want to do it or makes you tired or feel burnt out and once you kind of get under that level you can start to make changes um and that's what really helped me a lot (laughs) yeah so i definitely do not like water ants either they're and i just think that they're pretty boring and especially on those like those like really like either really cold or really hot days like especially those you get in the water and then everything is like 10 pounds heavier they have to hike up such a long set of stairs just to fix something that's like this big it just like doesn't seem worth it and so I'm I'm definitely trying to like him more, but like it's difficult. So how did you change your outlook? How did you? Yeah, I'll I'll tell you how. So it's a few things. So one, I decided to just try more tricks and not get so focused and get such bad tunnel vision on one trick, because you know for a while it was like a back full and then it was a cork seven and I just wasn't really good at either and I would just do them all day, all day, all day. And it just wasn't working. And so I kind of decided to not do so much of one trick per day. So I'd do about five core seven. And then I'd be like, okay, I'm going to do some back mutes. And okay, now I'm going to do some back tucks. And now I'm going to do some 360s, even though I don't do them anymore. They, they're kind of fun. And yeah. so that helped, just kind of adding some variation. And that, you know, it can only help your jumping just trying more tricks and like improving your air awareness. So that in itself is training. You're not avoiding training. You're almost just broadening your training and making it better. Strategy two, and this is 
what Riley Campbell, my coach for the past like decade, helped me with. So he made what he would kind of come up with challenges on any given day. And we'd kind of come up with games and he'd score some of my jumps and he would, um, you know, we, I, I don't know exactly what other games we'd play, but basically it made it fun and competitive. And so yeah. I realized that water ramping is so far away from the competitive season and it feels like you know that's so far away and for someone like me who is very competitive and needs that outlet it was a really big motivator for me to go up the stairs and be like okay like I'm supposed to land like one foot to the right and and some days Riley would be like okay and then I'll I'll buy you like a candy bar if you do that so there was (laughs) right yeah like I'm like a five-year-old out there but that's what it took um and so kind of just adding that little competitive piece and then I'd kind of compete with my teammates too and I'd be like all right like let's do like a little comp sim here or like let's play like a you know let's see who can do the biggest front flip or something like that and so it, it made it more fun first of all first like that was the most important was that it was more fun and then when it got fun I started seeing so many more improvements in my jumping. Yeah, that's, that sounds like really cool. I'd love to do those games like that you mentioned. That sounds like so much fun. I feel like that just add it, like just make it more enjoyable, like more excited to go. Exactly. And it makes it a lot less boring, like you were saying. Yeah. yeah. On the, are there still any more days that you don't want to go or are those kind of like behind you? Or are you just kind of like just always excited to go? Um, no, there are definitely days when I feel tired. It's more of like a physical and mental fatigue, yeah. uh, not not burnout, which is different. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of fatigue from training and working really hard. Because if you're working really hard, you're going to be tired. <laughs> yeah. Like, if you're not tired, you probably aren't like working hard enough, honestly. <laughs> so, yes, yes there are days when I'm exhausted and some some days so much so to the point where I will take a day off you know Mm -hmm. and I think that that's part of just growing up and learning things about yourself as an athlete some days it's best to take the day off honestly whether you need it for physical recovery or a mental recovery um sometimes that's the answer but other times it it's just finding that motivation to get out there and for me I and, you know, this is something that I've always thought of since I was 10 years old. I'll just picture an Olympic gold medal. Mm-hmm. If I'm doing a hard workout, if I'm doing bike sprints and I'm just like, oh, this is so hard, I can't do it. I'll just picture an Olympic gold medal like around my neck. And it it gets me through some of the harder, harder times, which is why not making the Olympics this year was so heartbreaking was because, you know, the Olympics and winning an Olympic gold medal, that dream means so much to me and it gets me through the harder days. Um, but that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, whether I you know, I will do my very, very best to make it to the next Olympics and win that, I'll probably be competing against you, Ava. <laughs> but but that's, that's kind of what I think each person needs to get through those harder days is that like core dream. And that's what's so magical about those dreams is that it can it can turn us into super superheroes and turn us into people and things that we didn't think we could do. So it's very powerful, the dream that we share. Yeah. 
I love that, especially when you were talking about like putting in the extra work because sometimes it's just that work that was that got you there and just that little bit of extra work that nobody else is willing to do that got you there. So, yeah, yeah I definitely like that. So on those days you don't want to go, who is that person that supports you? And just in general, who is your biggest supporter? Um. Oh, that's a tough question. I have a lot of amazing supporters. Um, but I would say Riley, my coach, has mm-hmm. been there every step of the way. He's been there every day for training, every competition day, um, a part of my sports psychology sessions every now and then. And he has – I know he has my back 100% and believes in me 100%, which is really important to have that because it's an individual sport, but it takes a team takes a full team to achieve dreams like this and mogul skiing is way more of a team sport than I ever imagined it to be for so many reasons but that one especially is supporters will get you there just as much as you can get you there so Riley my parents my family um, I think a lot of people in mogul skiing would owe a lot of their success to their family Um, And yeah, John Dowling, he's such an amazing coach. I mean, there's just so many great people in this sport and in the Vail ski community, the freestyle community um, that have been very supportive of me and everyone else. So a lot of people to thank. Yeah, that's, that's really amazing. Um, so we've been definitely talking a lot about skiing and the goals but what are you planning on doing after your after your career ends and skiing is done? Uh, well, I really want to pursue clinical psychology. Um, all of my work with sports psychology has really made me fall in love with that type of work. And I don't know exactly what I want to do. Maybe a sports psychologist or maybe something else. But I love working with people. I love talking with people. I mean, I'm enjoying this podcast so much just talking to you. So that's what I want to do professionally long term. But I'd also really like to explore like big mountain skiing. And um, because I mean, I think I'll be a lifelong skier for sure. I mean, this sport is in my blood. It's in all of our blood. And I'm not going to be able to mogul ski forever. (laughs) So (laughs) I would definitely want to transition into maybe you know, film skiing, um, competing in Big Mountain. I'm not really sure, but I'd love to explore that. Yeah, that that would be really interesting, especially that Big Mountain idea. Like, like I like just today while free skiing, Vail got dumped on, and I was like doing all these cool features. I'm like, whoa, this is like really cool. So yeah, yeah totally. And I'm I'm biased, but I mean, I think mobile skiers are the best skiers on the mountain. Agreed. And, like, I think we can do anything. So I think, like, having that mogul skier representation in the Big Mountain community could be really mm-hmm. cool. I think we'd make some – I don't know. I think we'd make some history for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So you've had this big smile on your face this entire podcast, and that got me to thinking to a question. How do you define happiness? Oh, my gosh. That is really tough. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> How do you define happiness? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, it's really tough. I don't, right? it's hard. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, 
I think just like doing what you love and being surrounded by the people that you love really I mean it sounds cheesy but I really think that's that's what makes me the happiest is doing what I love which is skiing and being outside and doing it with my teammates and my friends and my family like that's when I'm my happiest yeah that's probably how I would find success too just doing things or being with people that puts a smile on your face and that like like how do I word this it's so tough yeah what is tough (laughs) basically how I would define happiness as well just doing things that you love being around the people that you love as well Mm -hmm. so yeah I think that that is about it um is there anything else that you'd like to add or ask me? Mm. Mm. What are your summer plans for training and just in general? My summer plans. I have a lot. So I think first would be, I want to say first comes, mm, no, momentum camps. What and session with- are you doing? I saw that you were coaching the second one. I, ooh, that's a good question. I will figure that out, but I know I'm doing two of them. Okay. I want to be there for a relatively longer time than I have in the past. So I'm doing two sessions of momentum, and then I'm heading over to Mount Hood, Oregon, where I will be. Oh, I just found out that I am doing momentum second and third sessions. Yay! Okay, we get to see together. <laughs> that's awesome. I know, that's so sick. Oh, yeah, that's going to be so much fun. Awesome, yeah. I mean, Whistler is some of the most fun I've ever had, like, in my life. It's yeah. so fun. With momentum. The best camp ever. Yeah, I haven't had the best luck with it, but it's okay. First year I went, I almost got my fingers broken because, you know, like, those head, like, they do, like, the handstand competitions, right? Yeah. me and, like, two other people, and then the girl next to me collapsed right on my fingers, and I did not have my gloves on. Oh, my Good. goodness. Okay, we'll make sure that it's a better experience this <laughs> year. <laughs> so, like, two of my fingers, or it might have been three, almost got broken. Like, all, like, a bunch of skin came off, and they're, like, black and blue it hurts so bad and then so I didn't ski a ton there I I did I I think I only missed like two days but it still sucked because I was in pain and then oh my my gosh the next session I went and I think we were about two days into the camp and I this time I actually had more friends than the last session because I was older so I'm hanging out with my friends. We go to the pool, and then we realize we don't have towels. So we go out, we leave, we go get some towels, and we come back, and then the door is locked. So this um, man opens the door. When he opens the door, my foot, I didn't realize, was under it, opens it, and it rips off my whole entire big toenail, just clean off. And that was so painful. So I, that, that, I missed a couple days again of training and it sucks so I haven't had the best luck but I'm hoping this year, this year will be better <laughs> yeah I got my fingers crossed and yeah we'll we'll do everything we can we'll make it a good year I'm just excited to duel you we should duel oh yeah I, that's what we're planning on doing for the ribbon cutting I 
John asked me, he was like, who would you rather duel, Liz or Tess? And I said, well, I've already dueled Liz, so I said definitely Tess. And then <laughs> that's that's fun. Yeah, we'll have to do that ribbon cutting next year. Yeah. yeah, that was a bummer. But um, continuing on, um, after Momentum, I'm going over to Mount Hood, Oregon with my whole team. Then water ramps, water ramps, water ramps. Yep. Yep. I know know the drill. Well, try some of those things that I said. It helped me, um, but you got a long career ahead of you. So just try everything you can switch things up. There really is no wrong answer I've found with like trying new things, honestly. Yeah. It's only going to make you better. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good advice. Thank you. So (laughs) I think that that has wrapped it up so thank you everybody for tuning in and i will see you next time bye tess bye you've been listening to the happy podcast with your host ava keenan a podcast about mogul skiing success and happiness be sure to check us out at avakeenan.com and until next time happy skiing